Good morning, church. We find today's reading in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 21. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanages, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. This is the word of the Lord. Well, once again, a very warm welcome to you all this morning. My name is Martin. I'm the rector of Christchurch Midrand. If this is your first time at uh, Christchurch Midrand online, a very, very warm welcome. We're delighted that you have been able to join us this morning. This morning, we're going to continue our study in uh, Mark's Gospel. We've been working through Mark's Gospel, and uh, the passage has been read to, uh, read to you this morning, Mark chapter 3, and from verse 7 to 19. And uh, it will really be a great help to me if you can open your Bible to that passage as I unpack the Word of God uh, to us this morning. I'm going to pray. It's, uh, this is recorded. Uh, we're recording on Friday afternoon, so I need to pray that I've got my sermon ready and pray that God may speak to us through his word. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together as your people. We thank you that you are with us by your spirit. We thank you that we are your people because of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that we may meet the living word through the written word. And we pray that the author of the word, the Holy Spirit, may draw us to yourself. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Jean and I had been dating for some time, and I decided that I wanted to marry her. So, of course, I needed to ask her. So I organized, I think it was a Friday evening, uh, we, we were living in Cape Town, I organized that we would have a picnic 
on the slopes of Table Mountain, looking over the harbor, over the city lights. And uh, we went there. I think I think we had we had fish and chips, probably brought bought from Mowbray. And um, the wind was blowing. The wind is always blowing. So we sat in the car and had our we had our picnic. And of course, I was very nervous. I'd never done this before. And um, I finally plucked up the courage to ask her to marry me. I was planning to move up to Johannesburg the next year. Uh, so that was part of the proposal that I was moving up. And if she was going to marry me, that she'd have to join me. So it was part of the deal. And uh, I said to her, you may want to give it some thought. So I had to wait wait six months. No, she immediately and thankfully said yes. And I was over the moon. I really did marry above myself, which is always a good thing to do. What I didn't realize as a naive young man was that as soon as uh, we announced our engagement, it changed everything. It set in motion a whole series of events, of activities, of plans. Normally, it starts with, uh, with the girlfriends screaming. Uh, suddenly, there was just a whole flurry of activities. The date, the venue, the parents, the dress. In fact, Jean made her own dress. Uh, the guest list. Um, the premarital counseling, and I was, I was totally shocked. I was totally stunned. I had no idea that uh, this one event, this one evening, this one announcement would, um, would change everything. Well, in a sense, that's what we have in this passage, what we have in Mark's gospel. One event changes everything, and we'll get back to that a little bit later on. Now, you may remember earlier on in our series in Mark's Gospel, I said that Mark is essentially, John Mark, uh, that's his full name, was essentially answering three key questions. Who is Jesus, number one? Number two, why did he come? Number three, how do we respond? So if you took three cokey pens uh, and in blue, who is Jesus? In red, why did he come? In yellow, how do we respond? Almost all of Mark's gospel would be covered in one of those three colors. Thus far, Mark has been focusing mainly on the first question, who is Jesus? And you'll remember that we've seen repeatedly that Mark shows us passage after passage, cameo after cameo, that this man, Jesus, has authority. He's a man with authority, extraordinary authority, in fact, supernatural authority. We've had a few hints concerning the second question as to why he came, but that's really fleshed out later on in the gospel. Our passage today, chapter 3 from verse 7 through to verse 19, is actually dealing with a third question, how do we respond? Because in this passage, you would have noticed that, uh, that it includes three responses to Jesus, and we're going to have a look at them. There's the response of the crowds, verse 7 to 10. There's the response of the evil spirits, verse 11 and 12. And then there's the response of the apostles, verse 13 to 19. So this morning there are no side roads, so let's dig in straight away 
the response of the crowds. And let me read again from verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now, it's quite obvious there from verse 7 that it's a huge crowd, an enormous crowd. Verse 8, they've come from all over Palestine and beyond Palestine. In fact, it was a multiracial, multi-ethnic crowd. So we know from chapter 2, verse 1, that Jesus was in Capernaum, which was a fishing town on the Lake of Galilee in the province of Galilee. That's north Israel. So there's this large crowd from from Galilee, all Jews. And then there are people from Jerusalem and Judea, which is in the south, Uh, all Jews. Probably about two days' uh, walking journey um, from, from Capernaum. And then there were people from Idumea, which is south of Jerusalem, also all Jews people east of the Jordan River, and that would, be, that, that would have been a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And then people from the northwest, so north of Capernaum, north of Galilee, northwest, you had Tyre, Sidon, on the coast, all Gentiles. So right away, Mark is introducing us to the fact that the, that the new covenant people of God The community of God's people is made up of Jews and Gentiles, all races, all ethnic groups. Verse 10, it gets a little bit scary. Have a look there because there's no crowd control. There's no security. There's no big concert officials or police. So that all who had diseases passed, pressed around him to touch him. In fact, notice verse 9, it tells us that there was a real danger of Jesus being mobbed, of being crushed. Which is why, you'll notice there, verse 9, they had to get a boat ready just in case. It's, it's sort of the idea of having a getaway car standing idling behind the stage in, in case you need a quick getaway. Almost like a, when you read verse 9 and 10, it's almost like a rock concert with a rock star and there are tens of thousands of people all wanting to get close to him, all wanting to touch him, all wanting to grab a piece of his clothing, all, in, all wanting his autograph. Remember rock concerts? Seems like years ago, doesn't it? Last rock concert I went to with my family was, uh, was the Coldplay concert a number of years ago at uh, Soccer City. 65,000 people from all over the country. They only had the one concert. And so there were people from all over the country, from Zimbabwe, from Zambia, from Mozambique, and uh, everyone wanting to get a seat as close to the front as possible, just wanting to be close up to Chris Martin and the band and to, and to feel the sound. It was, it was terrific. It, it was a wonderful evening. My head was buzzing for days afterwards. Well, I think that's something of what we have here. You see, the crowd are like fans. They want entertainment. Fans want a piece of Justin Bieber or or Bono or Jesus Christ Superstar. The problem with fans is that they're fickle, aren't they? 
Today it's Justin Bieber. Tomorrow it's it's Black Newborn. Fans want to they want to fix, they want to high. Fans don't do commitment. It's quite striking that the crowds in this passage aren't at all interested in his words, only in his works. So notice there, the end of verse 8, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And what was he doing? Well, verse 10 tells us, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So they didn't come to listen to him. They didn't come to learn from him. They didn't come to submit to him. No, they came to take from him. What can we get? What can we take? You can go, says mom, but don't come back without, without a healing. So in Mark's gospel, the crowds never become disciples. Individuals do, but the crowds don't. Jesus has compassion on the crowds, but you never hear of the crowds being committed to Jesus. John Mark never describes them as exercising faith and repentance. They are spectators. They are takers. What's in it for me? They're either passive or fickle. So remember, in Passion Week, towards the end of Mark's Gospel, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, they are crying out, the crowds, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just a few days later, five, six days later, what are they saying? Crucify him. Crucifying. Talk about fickle. They change in a heartbeat. Unlike, unlike many parts of the world here in South Africa, there's still social mileage in calling yourself a Christian. I quite often ask people, I, I try and do it sensitively, but I quite often ask people, are you a Christian? And it's very rare in South Africa for someone to say to me, no. I mean, sometimes, but it's very rare. The follow-up question is, so when did you become a Christian? And uh, more often than not, the answer is, I was born a Christian, which, of course, uh, gives you some idea as to where they are. Which means that we have lots of fans of Jesus, so to speak, in South Africa today. Just watch Easter. There will be millions. Think about it. Jesus in South Africa has many fans, crowds and crowds. Some wanting Christian entertainment, think of so-called Christian or so-called gospel music. Others wanting a motivational experience, some spiritual high, some spiritual buzz. They want to leave church feeling pretty much as you feel when you leave a rock concert. Well, not much chance of that at CCM. Sorry for you. I don't think there are many fans of Jesus in Iraq or Iran or Saudi Arabia. You're either a devoted disciple of Christ or nothing. So you wouldn't have a bumper sticker on your motor car if you lived in Baghdad or Tehran, that Jesus is Lord, chances are your car would probably get burnt. 
perhaps your house as well. Now, in Saudi Arabia, I don't think there are any fans of Jesus. You're either a committed follower of Christ or nothing, because there's a cost to follow Christ in Tehran. You need to be willing to pay with your life, which is actually what Jesus teaches us. Turn to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, verse 34, where Jesus gives us the bottom line in how we respond to him. So it's a question, how do we respond to him? Well, here's the bottom line, chapter 8, verse 34. You got it there? Chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's pretty stark, isn't it? It's black or white. It's in or out. There are no fans here. There are no spectators. There's no fence. There's no halfway house here. You either live your life for yourself and lose it, or you lose your life for Christ and you save it. It's one or the other. As I said last week, get in or get out, but stop blocking the door. People need to see the real thing. The question is whether you are a disciple or a fan. Whether you're a disciple who follows Christ or a spectator. The question is whether you're just dating Jesus or whether there's a real commitment All right, second group. First group is the response of the crowd. Second group is the response of the evil spirits, verse 11 and 12. Back to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So what is abundantly clear is that the evil spirits fully understand the identity of Christ. You are the Son of God. Now, let me just step back for a moment. As you well know, the Bible makes no apology to teach about the supernatural. The Bible says we do not live in a closed universe. A closed universe is what you find in secular materialism. All that there is is what you can see and touch and smell and count. It's a closed universe. There's nothing more than we can see and touch, and hear. No, the Bible says we live in an open universe. There's a real God, there's a real Satan, there are real angels, there are real evil spirits, there's a real heaven to be gained, there's a real hell to be avoided. Once again, in this passage, verse 11, we meet evil spirits who are agents or messengers of Satan. It's quite striking that in all four Gospels, when Jesus, the Son of God, appears on planet Earth, it seems to arouse, it seems to awaken the anger of Satan and his spirits. It's almost if they are angered at his appearance on their turf. So there are regular skirmishes between Jesus and Satan, Jesus and the evil spirits. And of course it culminates with Judas led by the evil spirits, led by Satan himself and the leaders of Israel, crucifying him, killing him. 
first it seems up to the end of chapter 15 that they've won. But of course, you need to get to chapter 16. It's also quite striking that, um, that the disciples and the twelve only understand who Jesus is, his real identity, in chapter 8. So the evil spirits understand who Jesus is from chapter 1. They only understand who Jesus is from chapter 8. So turn, turn again to chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 29. Turn again there. Jesus asks the critical question. This is really the hinge, the key point of the gospel of John Mark. Mark 8 and verse 28 and uh, verse 27. He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others said, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. You see, no one gets, no one understands, after all this time, who Jesus is, what his identity is. And then chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, finally the penny drops, and Peter says, you are the Christ. It takes them up to chapter 8 to finally understand who Jesus is. And they actually don't get the full picture until after the resurrection. In total contrast, the spirit world, the underworld, have no confusion about the identity of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 11, notice there again. When they saw him, they fell down before him in fear and cried out, you are the son of God. The theology of the underworld is absolutely correct, absolutely orthodox. Right from the beginning of the skirmishes, between Jesus and Satan, Jesus and the evil spirits. They know exactly who he is. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 24. Right from the start, they know who he is. No confusion whatsoever. Chapter 1, verse 24. There's a man with an unclean spirit, and he cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So it's quite striking. They not only know who he is, they know why he's come. Have you come to destroy us? Here in chapter 3, verse 11, the evil spirits say, you are the son of God. Chapter 5, verse 7, same thing. Chapter 5, verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The Apostle John makes it crystal clear that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So back to chapter 3, verse 12. It's quite clear that the evil spirits know exactly who Jesus is. And then he strictly, verse 12, he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus came to conquer them. He came to destroy them. He doesn't want his enemies to explain his identity to others. No one would want that. And of course, not only did Jesus tell the evil spirits to remain silent about his identity, but he often said the same thing to people whom he had healed. Remember that when he healed, when he healed the leper, chapter 144, he said, see that you say nothing to anyone. Now, we find that quite strange because in the epistles and at the end of the Gospels, we are told to spread the Gospel. And yet here, they are told to remain silent. 
Well, the reason Jesus didn't want those who were healed to tell people that he was the Messiah, because not only did they need to know that he was the Messiah, they needed to know what kind of Messiah he was. He didn't come to be a political military Messiah to rescue Israel from the Roman oppression. That's not the kind of Messiah he was. He didn't come to be an economic um, prosperity Messiah to rescue us from poverty or illness. No. We only understand later in the gospel that he came to be a suffering Messiah, a dying Messiah, a crucified Messiah. So he didn't want anyone to talk to others that they had met the Messiah until they knew what kind of Messiah he was. Messiah who came to rescue them through suffering. Back to our question. How do we respond to Jesus? Well, we've seen the crowds. We're just fans. The crowds were just spectators. What is the response of the evil spirits? Well, they they knew exactly who Jesus was and why he came. So their response was perfectly correct. It was perfectly orthodox. It was theologically accurate. But of course, they had no intention of following him. They had no intention of submitting to him. They had no intention of obeying him. And that's a massive, massive warning to us, the readers of the gospel. It tells us that you can know a great deal about the Bible, a great deal about Jesus, a great deal about God. You can know the hymns, the prayers, the creeds. You can have a theological degree. You can have a PhD in the doctrine of Christ. And yet, despite all your intellectual knowledge, despite all your theological expertise, There's no guarantee that you're a disciple of Christ, that you're a follower of Christ, a believer. So you may well know your way around the church. You may well know your way around the Bible. You may well know your way around theology. But unless you submit to Christ as king, which the evil spirits didn't do, nor did the crowd, unless you submit to Christ as king, unless you lose yourself and live for Christ, you cannot be a Christian. Remember what James said, chapter 2, verse 19, the half-brother of Jesus. He said, you believe, he's speaking to his Jewish uh, readers, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So even the demons are theologically correct. They believe that there's, there's a God, there's one God. But there's no repentance, there's no faith which means they are destined for hell and destruction. All right, the third, let's have a look at the third response. First of all, the crowd. Secondly, the evil spirits. Thirdly, the apostles. Now, before we can apply this passage to ourselves, we do need to understand the unique nature of what is happening here. There are certain things happening here in this section, as in the rest of the gospel, which are unique to Christ which are unique to his apostles and not true of us. There are many things in the gospel which is true for us, but there are many things which are unique to salvation history. Have a look at verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, if you know your Bible, you will know that mountains are quite significant points in salvation history. 
So God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on, on a mountain. Abraham sacrificed Isaac on a mountain, which was a picture of the cross. Jesus gave his manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, on a mountain. So when he says here, and he went up, went up on the mountain, our ears should pick up because something significant is happening here in terms of salvation history. That doesn't mean that we meet God on, on the mountain today. We can meet God anywhere, anytime. If it was only the mountains where we could meet God, it would mean that people living in the free state would never meet God. It's as flat as a pancake, except for Naval Hill in Bloemfontein. It's called Naval Hill, a thousand miles from the coast, which kind of proves my point. You can meet God anywhere, but in salvation history, God did significant things on mountains, and that's what's happening here in verse 13. Firstly, we see the sovereign purpose of Jesus, the sovereign purpose of God. It was not their choice to be apostles. They didn't choose him. No, it was Jesus' choice. It was Jesus' initiative. And he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. So in those days, the rabbis had students. They had disciples. And the disciples, the students, would choose which rabbi they wanted to follow. So they would sample a rabbi and then go to another rabbi and then make a decision which rabbi they would follow. Much like today, we would choose which university, which college to go to. Is it UJ? Is it UNISA? Is it Wits? Is it Tuckies? Is it Damlin? But not so with Jesus. They do not choose him. He chooses them. He takes the initiative. He exercises complete authority. Every one of the apostles were chosen, called by Jesus, and they came. Then notice verse 14, which is quite a unique critical junction in the ministry of Jesus. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, a good question we may, we may want to ask is, why 12? Why not 10? A synagogue could be established in a town or a village if you had 10 Jewish men. Why not 3? The Trinity is 3. The answer is, and it's fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament, is that Jesus is establishing a new Israel. The old ethnic Israel, as we've already seen, rejected their Messiah. They rejected their Christ. They opposed him. And so what Jesus is doing here, starting in chapter 3, verse 13, carrying on throughout the gospel, he's establishing a new Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel are replaced by the 12 disciples of Jesus. Here is the embryonic root of God's new community, God's new covenant community. So that means that God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament will no longer be fulfilled in the nation-state of Israel. No, they'll be fulfilled through the new Israel. And here's the embryonic root made up of 12 disciples who will make disciples of both Jews and Gentiles. So I'm well aware that in, that in the wider Christian church there are, there are godly people who who teach that uh, God's promises in some way, the end times in some way, will be connected to the nation-state of Israel. I would certainly disagree with them. 
Because I think chapter 3, verse 13, 19 trashes the old Israel. Jesus is establishing a new Israel, a new people, made up of Jews and Gentiles. The other unique aspect in this passage is the word apostle. So let's quickly have a look at that. The word apostle means messenger, representative, someone who acts on behalf of someone else. It was sometimes used to give a power of attorney. Uh, the word was used, apostle. In the New Testament, it's mostly used, 99% of the time, of the 12 disciples because they have a unique function to establish the early church, to act as Christ's representatives, to form the foundation of the universal church, to give us the New Testament. So they were unique. We no longer have any apostles in the sense of the 12 apostles because they were the once-off founders of the church giving us the New Testament at the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, end of chapter 1. They need to choose a replacement for Judas. And so they say that replacement needs to have been with us since the baptism of Jesus. And he needs to have been a witness of the resurrected Christ, someone who had been there from the beginning. Remember when Paul spoke to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul, Paul tells Timothy that he's about to die. And he gives Timothy a charge to preach the gospel. Not to lose this, this treasure, this antidote to death. What is striking is that Paul does not appoint Timothy to be his replacement apostle. He doesn't. Timothy is not an apostle. I mean, if anyone could have been an apostle, it would have been Timothy. But Paul does not appoint him as an apostle. And then he says to Timothy, you go and appoint elders in the churches. Not, not apostles. No, appoint elders. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul talks about the foundation of the church, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You see, it's through the apostles and the prophets that we have God's special revelation, which is the Old and New Testament. They were once-off representatives of Christ, the apostles, establishing the church. You don't rebuild the foundation. We've been going 2,000 years. It's been there for some time. We have a foundation. What is the foundation? Well, it's the revelation of God through the prophets, through the apostles, which was given once for all. Now, why am I going on about this, you may ask? Well, it worries me that in our contemporary Christian world, there are ministers, there are pastors, there are Christian leaders who call themselves apostles. Now, it may be out of ignorance, but I wonder if it's not more often people setting themselves up as sources of new revelation, sources of special blessing, sources of power. Perhaps they're using the, the title to uh, claim some special authority for themselves, which they don't have. There were 12 apostles, but they were physical eyewitnesses of the life, death, resurrection of Christ. They were the sources of revelation to us, giving us the prophets, the Old Testament, the apostles, the New Testament. They have all died, so they're no more apostles. No successes. 
I may be old, but I'm not that old. I'm not an apostle. Call me Martin. Well, there we have two unique aspects to this passage. Let me quickly pick up some general aspects which applies to all of us. Remember, we're looking at responses to Jesus. So our response to Jesus ought not to be like the crowds who are fickle, who are spectators. We are not to be like evil spirits where there's intellectual knowledge, academic knowledge, but there's no obedience, there's no submission to Christ and his authority. No, like the apostles, verse 13, we are not apostles, but like the apostles, when Jesus calls, verse 13, we come. Perhaps that's what he's doing with you today. He's calling you to come. And you'll also notice, like the apostles, verse 14, they came to be with him. So discipleship is firstly relational before it's operational. To be with Jesus means that you trust him, that you submit to him, that you love him, that you obey him, that you talk to him. But then not only are you with him, but you serve him. He called them that that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So for them it was preaching, casting out demons. It may well be the same for us or it may be some other kind of ministry, but you cannot be a disciple of Christ without serving Christ and serving his people and his kingdom. Let me close. Let me go back to where we started. When I asked Jean to marry me, it changed everything. Just that one event, that one fact, changed everything. If Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Christ, the King, it also changes everything. It can't just be You can't just be a fan. You can't just be part of the crowd. You can't just have an intellectual knowledge of Jesus. No. It's either completely true or completely false. And if it's true, which it is, it ought to change everything for you. How you live, how you use your time, your talents, your money, how you die, your morals, your ethics, your relationship, everything changes if Jesus is king. C.S. Lewis said, and I can't put it better than C.S. Lewis, he said, I quote, one must keep on pointing out that Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. End of quote. So the question this morning is, what is your response going to be? Well, let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on the word of God.
There may be someone here this morning who says, Lord, I felt your spirit pressing in upon my heart, upon my mind. I don't want to be like the crowds. I don't just want intellectual knowledge. Oh, Lord, will you call me? Will you cause me to come? Will you cause me to submit to you as Savior and King and Lord? And Lord, for all of us, we pray that we may reflect on our response to Christ day by day and that we may live for Christ and die for Christ. And so, Lord, be with us this week. Help us to serve you and to live for you wherever you've placed us. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, once again, it's been a great joy to have you with us here this morning. Thank you so much for being part of our Sunday morning service. We'll be back, God willing, next week. I hope you can join us. I do hope that you have a wonderful week and may God bless you.